This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. There's a phrase that sometimes comes up among those of us who love poetry. It's called the heresy of paraphrase. It's from a book published in 1947 by Clinith Brooks titled The Well-Wrought Urn, but it captures an idea that goes back to Aristotle. And this is the idea, a poem. There's a phrase that sometimes comes up among those of us who love poetry. It's called The Heresy of Paraphrase. It's from a book published in 1947 by Clinith Brooks titled The Well-Wrought Urn, but it captures an idea that goes back to Aristotle. And this is the idea. A poem, at least a good poem, is a finely crafted work of art. And the way it's crafted, the way its words are structured, is intrinsic to its meaning. You can't paraphrase a poem. You can't say it really means or basically means this or that like you can with other sorts of communication without distorting it. Because how a poem uses language is as important as what its language conveys. In a poem, form and content are inseparable. This view of poetry is the reason those of us who love poetry end up running to our bookshelves in the middle of a dinner party and pulling down our favorite poems and reading them aloud to our unsuspecting guests. Because once you mention a poem you love, it doesn't only feel inaccurate to say it's about this or that. It feels like a kind of heresy, like your clumsy paraphrase is damaging it. And that's exactly how I feel about the poet I'm interviewing today. Leah Panea Wilson's new book is called I Build a Boat with All the Towels in Your Closet and Will Let You Drown. And if your ear or your mind popped a little when I said that title, that's because even her titles are poetry. Here's another one. She eats his heart. She has two hearts. She doesn't know which one to use. She begins to call the second heart Little Baby or Blitzkrieg. As you can hear, the sheer verbal energy, the grammatical verve and irreverent jolts of her language are dazzling, surprising, unparaphrasable, and if you happen to find yourself at my house for dinner, you'd be hearing me read it over more than one glass of wine. Fortunately, we have her here. Leah Panina Wilson, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's great to have you here. You're a poet. Yeah, yes, most most of the time. <laughs> 
sometimes I just live on the internet of Twitter. But yes, mostly poets. Well, I am hoping at some point we can we can talk about your tweets, which are some of the most amazing things I have seen on Twitter. Um, and uh, and I think that there, if if I were a literary scholar, I would want to write about that as well. Um, <laughs> but we have you here for for a book today. It is entitled "I Build a Boat." I build a boat with all the towels in your closet, and will let you drown. I mean, that is great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I, I think just the kind of energy in that title, um, it, it, it captures something about your sensibility uh, as a poet, something about um, the kind of energy that, that your work has, which is tremendous. But I'm just kind of curious, right? So, so poets, they sort of come into the world in interesting and different ways than, say, you know, those of us that are, are stuck in the world of prose and argumentation or, or just everyday language. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, this is your first book, sort of the wellsprings of your own work and your sensibility? Yeah. Um, I actually, all my friends are prose writers, so for a really long time, I hated poetry. Um, because it's sort of staunchy and boring um, and really formal, but it turns out that poetry does not have to be really formal or boring. Um, <laughs> and so when I met the second generation New York school poets, uh, not like met, met, but when I came in contact with like uh, Alice Notley, Ann Waldman, uh, Eileen Miles, Barbara Guest, I didn't realize that language could let so much stuff in. Um, until then. And so and that's <laughs> what can you remember in reading their poetry? Like, was there, what, what struck you? Like when you say stuff, do you mean things besides angst and melancholy and blackbirds oh. in a field all alone? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if there are any blackbirds in the poets I mentioned. There's owls, um, but there's a lot of disembowelment stuff as in like, uh, everyday stuff, like this table that I'm sitting at or these bananas, um, which are almost too ripe or the pineapple that I'm staring at across the, across the way. Um, so there was less, uh, aestheticizing, I guess, everyday life. If you want to think of it like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and more sort of translating like what your actual lived experience is. And that's kind of how I think about poetry as an act of translation. So like, how can I translate whatever it is I'm dealing with, um, out of my actual body so it can be on the page. And I think that that's, that's a really hard thing to explain to people because it sounds very weird, right? <laughs> it does. Well, what I would expect traditionally would be something like a, a romantic capital R version of what's in my soul, right? Or an earlier yeah. version of, of what's in my mind. <laughs> but to say body, what would that mean? I don't know. It's it's hard. Like if you notice my poems, they're sort of like irregularly rhymed and sometimes quite random. And there's a lot of interruptions in the poems and a lot of dialogue. Um, and I think of those things as phys physical, like things language can do physically on the page. Um, so it's like always moving around and never steal. Still, like be still, not steal as in I theft from you. Um <laughs> Um, but I think that that is uh, a thing that poetry um, is really good at. Um, sort of like the movement down and across and sideways on the page. There is um, there is this tremendous kind of 
I don't know what you call it, something like the energy of the page. I sometimes refer to it as the flip factor, like back when there used to be bookstores and you go in and you might be in the poetry section, which was usually in a dark corner by the restroom. Um, yeah, but, you know, you'd it still o- is, I think. I think it is. You'd, you'd open a book and you'd just be kind of like, I've seen this before, I've seen this before, this just sort of looks drab. And then every once in a while you'd open one and you'd say, oh my goodness, I've never kind of seen poems laid out with that kind of energy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got poems that work on both sides of the right and left margin. You've got ones that seem to trickle down the page, some very thin and kind of reminiscent of William Carlos Williams and other ones that seem to be working in a, a kind of field aesthetic like Joy Graham or Charles Olson. Uh, I love I love Joy Graham and William Carlos Williams and Charles Olson, actually. Um but I was going to say something about the way they move on the page. Uh, there's an interesting thing about like how time works in a poem differently than how, because you brought up fiction, differently than how it might work in fiction. Um, because a lot of the traditional fiction things you have beginning, middle, end, and you have all this space uh, to accomplish that in. And a poem has less space in that respect. Because uh, you're, you're reading on one page a lot of the times, and then you're turning the page, and the expectation is that you're going to get a new poem on that page. Um, so I think that, like, this book in particular, now that I'm thinking about it, um, sort of illustrates the frustration with that reading. Because some of the poems are broken up, um, and there's lots of references to poems that happened in early in the book, later in the book. Um, and there's also sort of variations on earlier lines. So the title itself comes back and, you know, the traditional poetic move is that this is the moment where a beacon goes off and, and the title is a variation on the poem or the poem is a variation on the title, Mm -hmm. but they aren't syncing. Yeah. (laughs) I think that there's like, there's so much that you can't control in the like kind of fucked up world that we live in. um, Even before 2017, um, that it's okay. If I, if, I felt like I'm telling my students, it's okay if you can repeat yourself, um, just sort of like do it differently. Or if you keep coming back to like, sometimes I come back to themes. Um, I like animals, obviously. Uh, I write a lot of love poems, um, but they're never really the same, even though they're dealing with the same kind of themes. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think repetition is one of the ways you're getting music out of your poetry, the way it comes back. In fact, one ends all wanting repetition, repetition. How do you execute yeah. a dash? Um, so, so do you see it as, as musicality or do you see it as sort of the condition of everyday life that you started off talking about? Yeah, um, I think it, I think both, um, if that makes sense. Do you ever have that weird feeling of like deja vu when you're doing something? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I have that feeling often. <laughs> Um, and so sometimes I think that the poem reflects that feeling of I said this before, I've experienced this before, I've been here before. Um, but I do read all the poems out loud on the point of musicality um, to make sure that I can, to me, this is like really embarrassing, but to make sure that I can pronounce the words that I'm using in my poems. Um, and to make sure that they sound okay, like in my mouth before I commit them to the page. Uh, which I guess is a weird description now that I have said it out loud to you. 
It, it is a weird description, but a, a very true one. And I think um, I, I will confess to have given readings and then gotten stumbled up in my own tangle of work. So I think I should do that. Uh, but but there is this idea, you know, that I guess that the traditional term is diction, the kinds of words that show up that give uh, a poem its feel. And your diction will, will go from sort of very simple, straightforward, sometimes even just nonsense syllables um, mm-hmm. to, to, to huge sort of conceptual, big polysyllabic Latinate terms. I think that part of that, at least in this book, is that tension between um, the everyday life that I started talking about um, and like how you would chat with your friends is not the same as how you might talk to a professor or how I might talk to you on this interview, um, which is apparently how I might talk to my friends. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> and I and I read a lot and uh, poets <clears throat> um, like evidence or I guess I as a poet like evidence of my reading to be in my poems. Um, so sometimes when that diction changes, it's like a response to things I'm reading. Um, there's a poem in the book about birth. <clears throat> and that is when I was reading William Carlos Williams uh, Improvisions and Spring and All. Um, so I was just <clears throat> sort of responding to the things I am reading. And because I have the attention span of a goldfish, I read a lot of different things at the same time, <laughs> um, which is, is part of why the diction in the poems changed so much. And I get bored with my own voice, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> so my, my poet voice on the page, not poet voice, um, often changes because I get bored of listening to myself sound the same. Because uh, we don't all we don't often sound the same <clears throat> when we're talking. I don't know why I have to sound the same all the way through the book, and I think consistency is kind of overrated. <laughs> so, so I agree with you, and I think, but just to just to kind of throw it out there, right? Like the the yeah. the sort of one of the governing ways in which we've been talking about poetry really for the last 70 years is like voice, right? Like yeah. I recognize the voice of such and such a poet. Um, and here to suddenly be like, you know, I'm getting bored yeah. with my own voice. Yeah. Find your voice, discover your voice, you know? Yeah. It's not such stupid advice. I hope no one's listening that has given that advice um, <laughs> because we have our own voices already. Um, like the way you talk, the way you punctuate your sentences, um, all those like sort of personal quirks. Like I'm moving my hands right now and that's part of, that's even part of my voice. Um, so I think it's like stupid to tell like young, I teach teaching a creative writing workshop this semester to find your voice or they're like, I haven't found my voice yet. And like you have just own it a little more. Great. Um, would you say that, that your aesthetic is, is one in which you're owning it just rung true to me, right? Something like you're just a lot more comfortable in your skin, even when you're feeling uncomfortable in your skin than I think a lot of poets. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it's okay to be uncomfortable. Um, I think maybe we're not uncomfortable enough um, just in general. And I think it's okay to be anxious and terrified and scared. This is all things I feel whenever I'm in public. Um, But I think that other people feel those things, too. Um, And uh, just, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that. Um, Yeah, well, I think it's something about, you know, 
different, different kinds of ways that we, we think about poems. One is, is sort of capturing an emotion or something and, and, um, just kind of putting the finger. I don't even know if I can put my finger on what exactly your poems are doing. I think one thing is that that they don't want to settle in the sense of staying still or settling to be something like just one kind of poem or one kind of lyric moment or one kind of grasp at, at, at some yeah. sort of idea they, they want to move. Yeah. I think that because poetry is such a physical thing for me, even as I'm writing, I don't like to sit in one place. I like to move around. I like to sit outside. Um, I like to randomly eavesdrop on people's conversations at places um, and then when I get all this stuff on the page, I like to ask myself, how can the poem live on the page now? And like now that I've put it out on the page, what help can I give it um, so that like it comes into itself? Um, and what, what lets you know you're on the right track as you're working through that process? That's a great question. Um, I, I guess I ask a lot of questions. So one of the other questions I ask at that point is, can it stay alive on its own? Um, does it need a title? Does it need another poem to sort of help it uh, live in the world, I guess? Um, have, like, have I experienced some sort of fun by the end of the poem? I like, I like things that are playful and fun and really random, like that goldfish moment I was talking about. Um, so if it's accomplished something remotely like that, I feel, I feel good, good about it. And that's the thing. I don't think we always have to write amazing poems all the time. Not that my poems aren't amazing. They are amazing. Um, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But I, I think that like, to say that you're a poet sometimes becomes really intimidating. And like, that's why a lot of my students are like, well, I'm not a poet. I'm a writer. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I'm a writer too. And I'm a poet. And there's like, there's like this, this really long history of poetry being intimidating for all those things that you mentioned earlier um, that I don't necessarily think is true. Um, yeah, well, right now. It, it's it's traditionally the elevated art, right? The the rarefied yeah. air. Um, and so so it's Which, inter- oh, please go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Which is so interesting because like what Dante brought to the poem was autobiography, right? That moment when he looks back at Patrice across that whatever the river of forgetfulness is called, and so he's bringing autobiography into the poem, um, which feels like to me it should have uncanonized it in some way. And made it less about a school of learning, but did not. So weird. Poetry is weird. Poetry is very weird. It, it, it strikes me that, that another weird thing that you wouldn't hear many poets saying is, you know, sometimes a poem might need another poem, as though they aren't these <laughs> autonomous individual art objects that are on a verbal pedestal. So when you, when yeah. you think of this book, do you think of it as, I mean, how do you think of it as a collection of poetry? Is it is it an arc and an experience that a reader has from the beginning to the end, or do they dip into it? What's kind of the way you imagine your reader? I, I think that this book in particular is an arc from the first poem or the first uh, section to the last section. I think that you get a lot of information between the poems and not that you can't dip into it. Um, but 
you won't notice the changes in the words or the subject positions if you just sort of dip into it. Because one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was sort of investigate categories of girl, woman, other, lover, mother, like that kind of thing. And you can't do, I, I can't do that um, just by one single poem. So the book also works as sort of a series of corrections on itself. Um, so when so you, I do think, yeah. Yeah, um, when you say su- subject position, that that's not coming out of the average everyday experience that you're having drinking with friends, or maybe it is. But that also sounds like <laughs> professor speak a little bit. Um, so- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, and yeah. It's Sunday, so I have workshop tomorrow. So half of me has professor speak brain, and then half of me is just like sitting drinking in my in my uh, table, coffee, drinking coffee. Okay, yes, it's too early or too late or something like that. Uh, well, it's eleven thirty here, so I have like a half hour before I can like really commit to a cocktail. I feel like okay. Well, that sounds like a traditional poetic time. <laughs> <laughs> so so when you have a title like she adjusts herself voice flesh right what what does that cue us to hear or to listen for um well uh have you uh, not have you ever i bet you have heard women talk um and sometimes when they say things they raise the end of their voice a little bit at the end of the sentence i'm i'm not doing a good job of it right now um and they sort of signal a question yes <laughs> even if it's something like, even if it's something like my name is mhm um anyway, your name is <laughs> uh, so there's lots of little like vocal inflections I feel like that you learn as a as a woman or as a girl a young girl um that might not be evident um, right off the bat, like, like the uncertainty of your own name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just like as a woman, you, you are really aware. I feel like you're really, I'm really aware how I won't speak for like all women, um, of how my body occupies space, uh, which is a thing I think I have learned. Um, not like born, obviously born with, but um, just like, yeah. Yeah. Um, like what have I accrued throughout the years of being in this identity category as, as woman or being read as woman? Um, and one of those things is things I do with my voice, uh, that I might not have been aware of before, or how, how even I sit in a public space. Um, well, so that's fascinating. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned Dante and the kind of journey, um, that he takes, which, which should kind of be on, le- on one level is, you know, to let the self in, but it's also this, this journey through hell. And, and I'm getting the sense that, that you're seeing your book as a, a kind of journey through acculturated models of femininity. Now I sound too much like a professor, right? But variations on voice, things like that. So, mm-hmm. so what do you imagine your reader experiencing from that first poem to that last poem? If they, if they do, see it as I I am undergoing a journey on this boat built out of towels. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope that they see some sort of friendship or community happening by the end of the book that um, I feel like sometimes you don't have permission to do things until you see an example or you're like, Oh, it's okay to feel like this. Um, I'm not alone in the, in the world. I'm on this boat with this other bitch um, and she will probably let me drown or maybe not. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I'm hoping they, they feel like they're not alone 
by the by the end of the book, and that it's okay to think that the world is fucked up because it is, um, but you should still get on that boat. <laughs> I I think it would be great if you'd be willing to to pick a poem and let us hear a little bit of what that sounds like on the page or in your voice. Yeah. Yeah, um, I will read. I'll, I'll read the description of a, of some building uh, first. Um, description of some building. They talked about never wanting to be in a long distance relationship. Relationship. It's late autumn. Why is autumn always so late? She muses out loud about the condition of the world, the weather. It's different here. I'm cold. She named her desire. She named hers. What did you invite in? She's baffled at herself. At her impasse. Mexican standoff. Momentarily romantic shit. The human impulse to expose. I fell outside dropping off my rent check. Scraping my knees. There was blood. Never wanting to be the subject. Never wanting you. You cannot break. It's yours. Yours. My heart is yours. That's that poem. Well, that poem is not only beautiful as a love poem, but I, I wonder if you could you could share with the people who are listening what that looks like on the page. Yeah. Um, the the poem has several quotation marks around different phrases of it on the page, <clears throat> um, and so the po- it interrupts itself um, in the like. I mean, I I obviously I really love Alice Notley. Um, so the impetus for trying that in my poems came from reading The Descent of Alette. Um, and I think that there's something about always continually being interrupted in, your, in who you are um, that's, that's very real. Uh, so I like it. <clears throat> I like the, the poem to reflect those kind of interruptions, if that makes, <clears throat> if that makes sense. It makes perfect um, sense. And I also, I also imagine that, like, if I were reading this poem, what I would have is one voice for every quotation mark, um, so that the po- the the poem would be multi-voiced. Hmm. Um, so it'd have all these voices making the same sort of sentence, phrase, experience out loud. And, and would you imagine that sort of each chunk of language would be a different person or variations? Yeah, different. No, I imagine it to be a different person. So, like, by the end of this poem, um, if I had 30 more friends, you would have heard it uh, in, in, 30, in 30 more voices, but, like, sort of all being this chorus. Um, <clears throat> so, how I so then is it a love poem? You know, with the I traditional sort of I and, I and thou, I and you? Oh, I don't think it's a love poem in that way. Uh, I do think there are a lot of love poems in this book. Um, I think often when someone asks me, what is your work about? Um, <laughs> I tell them I'm really interested in the romantic other, but I don't necessarily think that that has to be a lover. Um, I think it could be a sister or a brother or a friend. Um, and I think that we all experience those moments where we feel like we're in love and we are, and then we're not. Um, and then sort of how painful it is to be like weirdly ripped away from one womb into another. Um, that is a strange metaphor that I made, but I am going to commit to it. 
I think that's the best thing to do. Well, so, so let, let me ask you yet another terrible question that writers get, right? No, the, the one is what's your work about, <laughs> right? Where you have to give some reductive answer about the nature of your work. Um, another one though is right. Even worse. Like, so, so what is your work doing that we haven't seen? What's new? Um, when you look at, look at this book, what do you see in terms of kind of, you know, how it how it's pushing what American poetry is doing right now? Uh, um, I I've been thinking a little about that um, a lot, a little because I had just finished revisiting HD's Helen, um, Helen in Egypt, uh, which is a beautiful book, um, and I recommend it to everyone. Uh, but Helen in Egypt is very pretty. Um, and I don't mean that reductively, um, but I mean the kinds of, and it's it's sort of a long love poem among other things, but I mean her ideas about relationships and lines are just pretty. Um, you read it and you're like, yes, yes, these flowers are beautiful. Um, but I think that something my book is in conversation with is how sort of gross love is and how like sort of ugly and anxious that it is. Um, and you question like yourself, I think a lot. Um, I question myself. I think a lot. I won't talk for everyone. Um, and it's weird to think about how you are in a relationship with someone and how that's physical, right? It's like, what does my body mean now <clears throat> that we are in conversation with each other um, in this way? And I, I just think that's like kind of sometimes really disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if for HD, a, a reading of her poem would be someone saying yes, 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 with a successful reading of your poem being a, having a reader say gross, gross, gross. I hope so. I hope so. Or like, or like, yeah, that is what it feels like. Um, and I like, I just like, it's not love is like, it's, I don't know, no emotion really is like really consistent. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I am in this euphoric position all the time. There's a lot of work <laughs> that goes into romantic relationships, into like other kinds of relationships. And I think that my book was the process of that work. If I can like talk professor speak for a second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think that that is important. Um, and also, I think it's also goes into and I'll just like uh, meta the work that goes into poetry uh, at all like into building a book of poems um, and sometimes they're just like ugly things that happen um, and I think we should talk about those <laughs> maybe <laughs> does that answer your question I'm just like kind of rambling <laughs> it, it does answer my question I think uh, you know um, Edgar Allan Poe has that that essay the philosophy of composition where he explains how he composed um the raven because it was such a success and it's it's a complete lie it's you know he he basically goes about detailing his mathematical process of how he did the entire thing in his head before he put one uh, word onto paper um and then at one little point he kind of says as a wink to let you in on this this sophisticated joke that he says a writer would be you know, nothing of this is like what goes on behind the scenes the moment before the curtain goes up with chicken feathers and blood and everybody <laughs> rushing around and, you know, yeah. things falling. And, you know, right then, if you've ever written that, that that's the wink and this whole thing is a, a big joke yeah. on the public, that it's it's a flawless, bloodless, sublime yeah. process. 
Yeah, it makes it like untouchable in a way. And like, I want the chicken feathers and the blood um, to be in the poem, um, to be a part of that experience. So you don't feel excluded from the making of the poet of the poem. Um, uh, Denise Levertov has that last line in a poem I really love. And she's just like describing this relationship. And she says it throbs in the teeth. Um, and that's kind of, that's like one of the things I use to measure if, if my poem is like done, I'm air quoting right now. Um, does it throb in the teeth? Like that sort of nails on the chalkboard thing Mm -hmm. when like you like, you're done with the nails on the chalkboard and, but it also feels really bodily and comfortable. Is, Um, is there a poem in the collection where you think like this, this is sort of one of my touchstones for that. Like here, I knew I hit it. There's a couple poems in the collection that do a similar thing, and they also sort of invite silliness in. Um, because I, I like to interrupt myself. It's how it's sort of how I think. It's how I talk, obviously. Um, <laughs> so like something, the poem will feel really clean for a second, and then there's just random stuff that happens, and you're like, this doesn't quite make sense. Is this really even a poem? Um, and so there are a couple of poems like that in the collection, if that's sort of what you mean. And there's, there are a couple like really clean poems too. I, I would um, love I to just, hear one of the messy ones. Okay. Um, how about the, uh, history of the erratic? Um, again, that one's kind of messy. And so is, uh, okay. I'll just, I'll read the history of the erratic. That first. sounds great. Okay. Everyone has a secret. Hers inside hers. It's eating her from the inside. That savage assailant, it chews on our lungs, makes breathing difficult. Exercise, no. The equation, she can't find the equation. She tries to scare it out. Everything fears. Applies all the tactics of old. She she hits herself in the face. Throws her body into a lake, hot rock. Slams her hand to the refrigerator door. She's in pain. Her hand is cold. She eats a taco. Some fried rice. A bowl of banana foster ice cream. She tries to vomit, fails, laughs at the irony. She eats the same things again, 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 but this time she tops them all off with ranch dressing and a few glasses of cheap wine. She vomits, searches her vomit for some secret, any secret, something warm, something real, really real, authentic. Damn, fuck. She's not sure how many days left before complete digestion. She's digesting herself. She falls onto the bed to ponder the statistical likelihood of that. The, the authenticity escapes her. Now she shines. Now she's sullen and she doesn't know what to do with herself. She's a little erratic. She refuses to look at herself, refuses to look at it. That's the end of the poem. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so once again, that's another poem in which every single line is, is sort of, or it's, it's collected in terms of quotations. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. A lot of those poems are like I, there's a she and her in the poem. And so at moments where I felt like this was a feeling that my other lady friends have told me they've had um, or my sisters. And so I put I put those po- a lot of those poems in quotations because um, I felt like they spoke to something maybe a little more universal than some of the other ones. So that's fascinating. So, so what do you do with, with the kind of commonplace that, you know, what makes a poem is lines? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? What makes a poem? That, that's how you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a line. No, I think that um, I think that, that is a, and I hope none of my poetry teachers are listening, I think that's a misrepresentation. 
Um, I think what makes a poem is breath. <laughs> it's like when you breathe, like I'm just breathing deeply, for example, but like you can't see that. Um, it's like at the end of a phrase, when you breathe in, I think that that's what makes that make that makes a poem. And often poets break their lines when they breathe. It's like a poet trick. No one, everyone talks about it, but no one really believes it. But it's actually, it's actually true. Um, and so as long as you're reading the poem out loud, Really, anything can be a line. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the poet Stanley Plumley used to throw this sort of gauntlet of like, I defy anyone to know where the line breaks are in a free verse poem when they're read out loud because it'll look yeah. different on the page because they breathe differently. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also like it's it's also the amount that sometimes in a line you're like, I can't hold all those words in my mouth in the same breath. Um, so often I'll break a line there, which is what's great about the quotation marks. And I also like slashes and dashes, um, because they give me a second, uh, to breathe as I'm reading the poem. Um, and maybe the reader a second, uh, to breathe with me as they're reading the poem. So, mm-hmm. so you say there, there are moments of breath. I know that, that, you know, for Dickinson, the dash is often a moment of, or a flight of thought, um, mm-hmm. you have the use of quotation marks and slashes that, you know, traditionally denote poetic lines in prose. Um, yeah, sometimes you- things just look better in paragraphs though. <laughs> 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 it's a, it just, it just lo- it looks nicer and some things look nicer in a paragraph than they do in a line. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're you're doing this this PhD thing, and you're you know you're you're citing Dante and you're citing HD um, and schools of poetry and things. When you write, do you feel mm-hmm. like this kind of scholarly historical poetry self is at the at the table, or is that a, a kind of different gear? Um, I think that I have learned a lot from that scholarly group of poets uh, that I have been studying. Um, I don't, yeah, I guess I would say they are at the table. I mean, I consider them company, um, even if what I'm doing is sort of like raging against what they're talking about or just kind of nodding to them. Like, thank you for giving me permission to do this. I am going to do this other thing. Um, You're dead. So I guess it doesn't really matter if you like it or not. Such a mean spirited response to your own company. <laughs> they, they, they'll get over it. They'll get over it. You know. I I hope so. Um, I just I feel like if I believed in like hell, I just like like wrote myself a ticket. <laughs> talking talking back. Um, but like I do think that uh, that I often write in conversation with other poems that I'm reading. So sometimes like a. Uh, there's a William Carlos Williams poem in the book and I use um, improvisions, which is the word he uses in the poem. So sometimes their bones will be in the poems in that way. Um. I I think that the way in which, you know, artists reinvent their predecessors is one of the greatest tributes to their predecessors. And of course it's, it's, as you say, it's never in the way that that predecessor would have said. (laughs) But that's what makes it great. Um, there, there was this sad essay in William Gass's last collection where he was talking about whether or not he would have the kind of influence on future fiction writers that, you know, his, the people he'd wrote about had. And he was like, nobody took us up. Nobody's really interested in doing the huge, long, modernist tome, 800-page <laughs> tome. You know, David Foster Wallace died, but everybody – magical realism and you know Juno Diaz and that's where the excitement and the energy is so I don't know if you want disciples so much as 
people at the table who love your work. <laughs> that sounds better than disciples. It feels like you could you could do a better job of like eating or whatever. I think yes. <laughs> like sharing. Who, who wants yeah. to kneel on wood? I don't. <laughs> um, it sounds uncomfortable. Well, well. So we've had a chance to talk a little bit about how how you kind of locate your sensibility and your poetry in in terms of the the tradition. Um, I'm also curious as to how you think about it in terms of you know our cultural moment and um, and I'm just going to say again, you have one of the most linguistically energetic Twitter feeds I have ever seen. <laughs> it's hilarious and full of dark pathos. And, you know, sometimes you imagine like, what time did that get posted? Um, it's just great. So, so you, you do seem to be a writer who, who has not only different registers within her poetry, but different linguistic registers outside of it. And I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, you know, are you one of those that feels like you're responding to the culture as much as the tradition to, you know, when that average everydayness hits you, how does that feel? Yeah. Um, William Carlos Williams has that quote that I guess everyone quotes, but we were talking about him, um, that the poem is uh, a large or small machine made up of words. Uh, and that's how I think of my Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's like, it is, I guess it's like, a large machine made up of a lot of small words. Um, and sometimes I do respond to cultural uh, moments on my Twitter. Um, but like I said earlier, I have the attention span of the goldfish. Um, so I'll just, I'll just, I like Twitter randomly, but that's one of the things I really like about the internet, like Twitter or Instagram uh, is what I use mostly about the way that it's like continually ripping you. This is like both great and bad. I'm just uh, ripping you away from the world, like from the real things that are happening and at the same time, throwing them in right up in your face. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's hard to escape all the things happening in the world on the internet now when so much of it is about, uh, wit like about like sort of that pu those public moments of witness, um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you do you see a kind of do you see any stylistic affinities between the tweet and the poem? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not not in this book, um, but uh, a tweet makes you think of a line. Uh, it's like limited by characters on the internet. And what I was saying about breath, I think is, is really true on the Twitter because your line can't be so long um, or you can't, or you can't tweet it or you have to break it up into tweets. Um, I think Twitter is doing a little more maybe for like the essay than it's doing for poetry. Um, but I don't, I don't know um, just in that, the essay is really good at sort of like investigating something and redefining it and redefining it over again and being in conversation with all these multiple things at one time. And to me, that feels very much like um, the pathos that is in, that is in Twitter um, or like the sort of conceit that Twitter is working with um, a little more than a poem. So, so as of, as of last night, you have been terrorizing a, drink company that does Caribbean flavors. <laughs> <laughs> K.A. Drinks. K.A. Drinks has never been so oh. interestingly treated as you have tweeted. Oh. So so tell me how it works out in that example. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Kathy Acker. 
Is that is that what that is? Yeah, that's Kathy Acker. I'm. Uh... Oh, that is not K A Drinks. No, no, like Kathy Acker had a Twitter, um, and she drank. I don't know if she drank. I bet, I bet she did. No, wait, no. Um, I don't know if she did or not. Oh, okay. Um, See, this might be the 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 vagaries of Twitter because hashtag Ka takes you to Ka Drinks, which is God does it. Caribbean right flavors now. done wonderfully, and I, you know, and so I didn't know if it was. You just suddenly That's finding so- a drink of choice and then deciding that they would become your your cause. Um, but no, no. The, Kathy Acker makes no, much I, more sense. No, no, I feel I feel like I can't really commit to one drink of choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I'm kind of flaky in that way. I'm just like it sort of depends on what the weather is like, um, what mood I'm in, what alcohol is in the pantry. <laughs> um, no, I'm rereading uh, Pussy King of Pirates um, for this for this other thing that I'm working on. So those are, yeah, those are Kathy Acker. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yes. We, and she's she's known to have quite a, a verbal texture. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess I'm kind of interested in like sort of the uh, history of the uh, – of madness and of the erratic um, and how those things sort of intersect with these other like women, like how, what does this mean for, for a woman? Um, And I think the history, I I guess this, I don't know. um, I I feel like it would be different for, um, Oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, it's a, it's a very different tradition from the kind of HD, right? Yeah. Outsider it's, art, counterculture, William Burroughs. Yeah, it's differently institutionalized, I think is what I'm trying to say. Okay. And so that's that's the new thing I'm working on. So I was just re-refreshing, um, like putting Kathy Acker back in the company. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that I've had HD at my table for so long, um, it's like HD went away on a vacation, and now I invite Kathy Acker back because I don't know if they would be friends. Um at least you have someone that will carve into the table now. Yeah. <laughs> well, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what you are working on? You know, this this book is out, and I hope it is finding lots of readers. And you know, but I'm sure you're moving forward with your own work. Yeah, um, I am working on a new thing that started out sort of ephrastically, um, responding to that uh, portrait, uh, Christina's world. Um, that has the lady sitting in the field. Sure, that famous. The- is it Wyatt? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's like, it's like the one sort of everyone knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and the poems are turning out a little meaner than I had first intended them to be. But we do live in a very mean time. <laughs> so, um, so there are a bunch of uh, short poems, like mostly short poems that are in response to the meanness, I guess, of of our current uh you know, so what, world on fire. Sure. So, so if we think about kind of the world on fire and you know the rise of Trumpism and the media swirl around that, you know this iconic image of the the woman Christina lying in the grass with the the kind of gold grass and off in the distance there's the the farmhouse. Yeah, and her hands are like sort of differently colored in that in that portrait too. Um, she's so, like almost digging into the earth. <laughs> So, I, and I think, wasn't she crippled? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she and and so yep. so how does that become a focal point for you for for talking about the present? It seems very kind of pastoral, maybe in a creepy way. <laughs> oh, I didn't think about it like that. Um, I'm gonna write that down and think about the pastoral in a creepy way um, a little more. But I think that the idea that she's staring off into the distance and she's stuck in that one spot um, and she has been crippled and we don't know by what, um, even though in this current politicalness we we understand that we are being crippled um, by sort of not by sort of by all the all the Trump stuff, right? Um, his sort of cabinet of super real Nazis. Um, and so I'm just thinking about that historic, I guess, as this, mo- as a historic moment um, with her. I'm not very, I'm not, I haven't gotten very far on this project and I just sat, I sat another project aside. Um, it was uh, sort of a response to HD and all the epics I've been reading um, to start this new thing, which is definitely totally different. Well, I love the idea of you calling it super real as some sort of alternative to surreal because it does. It just feels <laughs> yeah. just so super real. <laughs> yeah, it does. In the it worst does. way. Like, it does. Like to call it surreal, I think at first I, f- I felt like um, the rise of Trumpism or whatever was surreal. It's like, can this really be happening? And it is. Um, so now it's, it's super real. It's like it does have an effect on your body. Um, so, like, part of the project is about the effect that the kind of language and all all these other body things have on particular bodies. Um, yeah, well, it sounds fascinating. I, I hope so. I just, I'm not very far in it, so like, I can't really tell you a, a lot. I would if I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that, that once it finds its it, whatever final form it has, and since you put things like final and done in quotes, I'll do the same thing. Um, okay. <laughs> but um, that you'll come back and talk to us about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I only put them in quotes because I feel like everything I write is still in conversation with the thing that came before it. Um. I just, I'm just like writing one long poem. <laughs> it's not true, but it's like how I think of it sometimes. It feels like it. It feels like we lay each poem as a step we kind of put down, and then you can step on that and figure out where you're going to go next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is your citizenship now? It's, it's so funny. Well, Leia, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, for letting me interrupt myself a million times and you. Well, the book is called I Built a Boat with All the Towels in Your Closet and Will Let You Drown. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you. (laughs) My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Leah Panea Wilson, author of I Built a Boat with All the Towels in Your Closet and Will Let You Drown on the New Books Network.